This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. A little game I play in my head each week is trying to work out what might link each guest on the show. Sometimes any possible link evades me, but this week I found it. So I'll open this week's show with a question for you. What links a novel about a machine that reads your DNA and a song by a social justice songwriter called The Imagineers? Let's start this week in the fictional town of Deerfield, Louisiana. What would you do if you knew your life's potential? Are we living a less fulfilling life by not letting our imagination soar and reaching beyond our current life station to be the person we want to be in our dreams? This is the question that opens the novel The Big Door Prize by M.O. Walsh and which takes the fictional town of Deerfield, Louisiana by storm when a simple photo booth style machine turns up in the local supermarket and in exchange for $2 and a cheek swab claims to use the science of DNA to tell each visitor what their life potential is. Magician, cowboy, surfer, nuclear physicist, or royalty. This is our entry point into the southern town of Deerfield, but as we get to know some of its citizens, the plot of M.O. Walsh's novel soon reveals a darker side to this seemingly benign curiosity and nefarious intentions and disturbing events come to light. As one reviewer wrote, it is a wise, wry, twisty and entertaining tale. And it is the multitude of stories and issues the book raises that got the Big Door Prize onto the Daniel Boone Regional Library's One Read shortlist and was then voted into the top spot by the public. The Big Door Prize is Walsh's second novel. His first, My Sunshine Away, came out in 2015 and was a New York Times bestseller. The Big Door Prize takes its title from the John Prine song, In Spite of Ourselves, and came out in September 2020, just five months after the world lost John Prine to COVID. Walsh's admiration of Prine and his music is apparent all through the book, with most of the chapter titles referencing Prine song lyrics. The Big Door Prize was one of just six works shortlisted for the prestigious Thurber Prize for American Humor 2022 and has already been adapted by Schitt's Creek producer David West-Reed for a 10-episode half-hour Apple TV series that has already started filming. And as September is always one read month, it seemed fitting that for the first Speaking of the Arts show of the month, I should chat with our one read featured author, Milton O'Neill Walsh, who is joining me from his home near Lake Pontchartrain, Louisiana, where he not only writes novels, but is also an associate professor and director of the Creative Writing Workshop at the University of New Orleans. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, M.O., well, thank you. Yeah, this is this is wonderful. I'm so excited about uh, the One Read program and getting to visit Columbia for the first time. I've never been there, so it's going to be awesome. I think you're coming on September the 27th, right? I believe that's correct. 
I think we have to start with John Prine and how the whole book is a beautiful homage to, as you write in the dedication, the still singing heart of John Prine. Now, this book must have already been at the publishers when he died in April 2020. And I'm sure it was a huge gut punch for you as a fan. But how did it feel as the author of a book on the verge of being published that is so full of his lyrics? Yeah, it was tough. You know, um, it was April 7th, I believe, it was the day before my birthday uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, when he passed away. And I can remember my wife is the one that told me the news and he's, his music is near and dear to both of us. And uh, I, you know, I have to admit, I had a little fantasy that this novel might allow me to meet him uh, at some point or at least correspond with him. And so I was very, uh, you know, selfishly <laughs> disappointed when I realized that wouldn't happen. But obviously in the larger scheme, just so sad that such a, such a remarkable presence in music and uh, such mm. an uplifting, I think, character was taken from us prematurely. It is a a curious and a lovely way to share your John Prime fandom with your readers. But take me back to how this idea got started. Yeah, well, it's one of the things I want to talk about when I when I come to Columbia is sort of how how John Prime's work came to inform this. And it, it was not at all part of the original plan. I don't know how many people have worked on novels or tried to, you know, do some sort of long project, but one thing that happens is new ideas come to you during the process, right? So I had been working on the novel for probably a couple of years, I would guess, at this point. And I had my scenario. I had my basic plot. I had all the things that that you want to have, my characters, right? But with, I think with a lot of novels, it takes a while before you sort of understand the purpose of your project and what it is what it is you're trying to say and what tone you want it to be, right? I mean, there's a difference between just having characters walking around doing things and having a sort of glue to the way that, that it, everything feels, right? And so I was, I was, uh, I remember I was just writing a scene, you know, one day and just kind of typing along, not thinking much about it. And I made like a little insider joke to a John <laughs> Prine, uh, John Prine lyric that I just sort of chuckled about myself. And I was like, well, you know, I'm sure maybe one out of every 10 readers might get this, but it was really just for me. And then when I thought about it, I was like, well, that's it's curious that I did that. And then I started thinking about his music. And I'm like, why is it that I can't really go a day in my life without thinking of a John Prime lyric, right? I mean, it's um, it's the type of thing where any situation that arises, it's like he has spoken about that situation at some point in his, in his catalog. <laughs> and so I was like, well what, well, what is it? Why is he so present in my life? And then I started thinking about, you know, just sort of the tone of his songs and the way that he treats the characters that he writes about. I mean, he has obviously a wide variety of songs, uh, but many of them are based on characters, right? That he either created or, or people from his life or whatever. And, um, and he is so consistent, I think, in the way that he views people. And that's with respect, right? And with also a sort of like wink in his eye, right? I mean, he has this sort of humor that, that runs through his music. Whenever I try to, to describe John Prine's music, he's one of those people that, to me that when he wants to be serious about something, he looks it in the eye, right? And it'll break your heart. He's so earnest about it. But he also 
I think understands that humans are are funny creatures, right? We, we just we get in, we get ourselves into all sorts of trouble, and and we just sort of bounce around the world in a funny way. And so I started thinking, you know, I'm writing these characters that are getting themselves into these situations they probably never could have foreseen. They're acting outside of themselves, and it was important to me in writing this book that I'm not making fun of these people, although funny things might happen to them, right? And there's a big difference between that. I mean, mm. I think sometimes you'll read a novel, at least I'll read one, you know, especially I'm I'm interested in literature of the South, right? And so I can read some novels where I feel like they're depicting Southerners without much respect, right? I mean, they're sort of lampooning them because they talk different. That means, you know, <laughs> they're not too bright. Uh, and so it was important to me that I was writing a book that could be humorous, but that I also respected the characters and, and believe that they walk around on this earth. And so I started thinking about it. I was like, well, you know, that's what, that's what he does, right? So, and maybe that's what I'm trying to do. And so I started going back and listening to a whole bunch of his songs, really his entire catalog, trying to find, uh, remind myself of those ones that gave me the feeling, the same feeling that I wanted to share with readers. And so once that happened, and I knew that my, my ultimate goal would be like, to write a really long John Prine song, <laughs> um, I embraced it. And so I went from, you know, having one little inside joke for me to next <laughs> thing I know, I was naming chapters after lyrics. And then after that, I went back and looked at the whole book differently. And so I started probably 30 of the chapters are now John Prine lyrics. The title, I did not have, you know, the Big Door Prize was not the title at the outset. That came later once I realized how I wanted to not only honor him, but like I said, try to create that same sort of tone that he does. And I think his warmest and most humorous songs. So that was really how it became a marriage to me. It was kind of about tone and finding that sort of an invisible framework that a novel needs to have to hold it together. You have a, a handy guide to the chapter titles at the back of the book that explains where the prime lyrics come from. And I think you say there are 40 or thereabouts references buried in the text oh, as yeah. well as the lyrics. And so you left them there as a little gifts for true Prime fans to find. And you invited readers to send you a note if they find the others. And I'm curious whether you've been deluged with notes. <laughs> I have gotten some. Yeah. Um, it, and it's really been great because it's one of those things where you know, you don't realize, I mean, there's lots of people who I'm sure have no idea who John Prine is, right? And that, that's fine. Everybody has different musical taste, but you don't realize just how profoundly music can affect people, right? And so I, I did hear from lots of people who absolutely hold him in the same reverence that I do. And they, you know, they were picking some out that they had found sort of scattered throughout and having a good laugh about it. But almost all of them, which is really amazing about a lot of the feedback that you get from novels is that people will tell you such personal things about their lives and about like what his music meant to them and how this particular song that I referenced, you know, reminds them of like a late wife or things that are just truly personal and, and touching. Right. And so it, it was it was important to me that a person could read the novel and have no idea who John Prine is and not miss a beat. Right. That was very important. I didn't right. want to stake the whole claim on, on, a, uh, on an outside reference. Right. But I did want those who know him to have a little grin. What was the book originally called? Oh, gosh. Well, so the so the novel actually started as a short story about 15 years ago, a small piece I had published before I expanded it. And, and the title then was The Dream Toe, but it's T-O-W, right? Like the toe of our dreams, right? But when you say toe out loud, it sounds like something on your foot. Um, <laughs> and, and so The Dream Toe was not quite what I was looking for. Um, so we, we had to we had to make a change there. 
Well, the Big Door Prize takes place in the few days leading up to Deerfield, Louisiana's Bicentennial Celebrations. It's a small town where everyone knows everyone. And recently, a machine has turned up in Johnson's grocery store, which is changing almost everyone's world. The DNA MIX machine that promises to reveal, with a quick swab for the Q-tip of some DNA from your cheek, what you are supposed to be in life. And it is, of course, one of those ideas that once it gets in your head, you start to wonder, A, am I really supposed to be making a a community radio show about the arts every week? And B, (laughs) would I actually pay my $2 just for the crack of it? So give us a backstory on this idea. You know, it's funny because for a lot of stories and fiction that I write, I kind of have no idea where the initial premise comes from. You oftentimes you just sort of start with a character that you're interested in, right? And sort of voice, you know, that you're enjoying writing. But this one, I think comes from just my baseline assumption that almost everybody walking the earth could probably be really good at something they have never tried. Mm. And we just, we just don't know just because the odds, you know, I mean, the odds are just too great that there's something out there we haven't tried that we might really love just, and there's a lot of different reasons why we may have never come across it. And so I'm just always interested in the idea, like what could somebody do if they, if they just had no idea that they, they would be good at it. Right. And so I like the idea of, okay, well, what would happen if, a person was able to get this information in a, like a reliable way. And, you know, different than somebody's grandmother saying, you know, I really think you would be good at ice <laughs> hockey, right? Uh, you know, different than that, you know, something that has some science behind it. And so that I think is where the idea of, of, of the machine came from. And I, I love, I love DNA, like the idea of it and the, you know, the idea that everyone seems to be pursuing their DNA and finding out who they are and where they're from. But like most people know so little about DNA, right? But we talk about it all the time as if we understand it. And so, and so you know, I was like, well, that's probably something that someone would buy. If he said, look, your DNA says this. You know, if a doctor said that to you, you'd be like, really? Oh, wow. My DNA says that, right? And so that blending those two things, right? So the idea of some sort of potential that you had no idea about backed up with a little bit, just a little bit of science. And so that's sort of where the machine came from. So you'd totally pay your $2 then, would you? You know, that's a good question. Uh, (laughs) And honestly, you know, I've been asked that, what would you want yours to be? Because, you know, the machine gives people this little readout that just has basically like a one word, uh, (laughs) one word answer as to what their potential life station is. And it was so much fun to write. This is, writing this novel was the most fun I've ever had writing in my life, period, without a doubt. I mean, I miss it all the time. I miss the characters. I miss, I miss the scenarios. It was just a real pleasure to work on, which is not always the case in, in fiction. <laughs> and I think part of it was just there were so many possibilities. I mean, I always refer to it as the dynamics machine, right? And so the dynamics machine to me is really like a story generating machine, So, I mean, if you think about the way fiction works, think about a short story or a novel, almost inevitably you're introduced to a character that is on one trajectory, something happens early on in the story that puts them on a different trajectory, right? That's basically how all fiction works. And that's what this machine does. Someone walks in there thinking their life is going one way and they walk out thinking it could go a different way. And so it almost felt 
like unlimited possibilities, which in a way was a problem. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, it's it's one of the great ironies of, of, of writing a novel is that a lot of what you have to do as a writer is find ways to limit the scope of it. I think a lot of people think about writing fiction as like opening doors and all, all this wild imagination, but really in a novel, you got to close a lot of doors or else the readers are interested in things you don't want them to be interested in, or else you don't have a clear through line mm. of the story, you know, and what people are supposed to be engaged in. And so once I recognized that it could totally spiral out of control, if, if, I, if I wanted it to, if I wanted to introduce, a, you know, 70 characters, I had to start putting some guardrails up. And so that was really where decisions like basing it in a very small town came about. You know, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't put this thing in New York City and think I could handle that story. So I had to have a finite number of characters, a small geographical space, all these things so I could handle it. And so what ended up happening is I was obviously interested in all the wild readouts people could get. Then I also had to consider, well, what's the backside of this, right? So what, what about a person, like you're saying, who doesn't want to do it, right? What about that? And then ultimately the idea I was always the most interested in is what if someone walks in there and it tells them that they have already become the best version of themselves that they could. Right. Um, what do you do with that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think I think a lot of people might think, well, that'd be amazing, right? That'd be so wonderful. You found out that you've already accomplished it. I think the truth of the matter is that would be devastating to a lot of people. Why? Because we all want to feel like there's something else out there, right? That that, you know, if we would have just applied ourselves, we could have done this or we could have done that. Or, you know, we've made certain choices that maybe held us back from things. You know, we've sacrificed stuff. Like, I think that everybody wants to consider that there's some other version, better version of themselves out there. So what do you do if it says, nope, you've actually you've actually done it. You've <laughs> right. actually done it. Congratulations. <laughs> but, you know, if a character is happy and they find out that they're the best that they're supposed to be, there's reasons that they're happy, right? And it's because they're a good person. It's because the, the, the people that surround them like who they are. And that's hugely important to me in terms of what I hope people get out of it. So there are a number of people we meet up close and personal in the book and whose stories we follow the most closely. There is high school history teacher Douglas Hubbard and his wife, Cherry Lynn. The parish's Catholic priest, Father Pete. High school student Jacob, whose twin brother was killed in a car accident a few months earlier. Trina, Pete's niece, and more importantly, the girlfriend of Jacob's deceased brother. And then the bane of Douglas's existence, Juice Newman, who... Every time he turns up, I can't help but hear Jerry Seinfeld say, hello, Newman. (laughs) So talk to me about how much the book is driven by the plot versus shaped by its protagonists and whether over the four years of writing it, that kind of changed. You know, it's funny just hearing you do the summary. I'm like, wow, that sounds really complicated. Uh, (laughs) I'm like, what on earth was that writer thinking? Um, But to me, it was it's always about Douglas and Sherilyn, their marriage and their their relationship. That was always the heart of it. Like I said, 15 years before, when I first wrote a story about this, they were the couple. I'm just one of these people. I just I believe in love very much. I, in, I believe in good marriages and I'm interested in them. Right. And so the idea of what would people that are in love with one another and think that they're happy, what would they do if someone came and whispered in their ear like this machine does? Actually, you're meant for something totally different. Mm. You know, w- what choice do you make there, right? Do you do you leave your happy, uh, happy place, right? Or do you trust 
and who in all the you know all the previous versions of yourself that brought you to this happy place what, what do you do and so that that was always the heart of it and now you know whenever I started expanding the story it was too rich an idea not to have other characters I didn't want it just to be the two of them but as I started drafting these particular characters arose one of the first ones was Jacob this high school kid why I, I, I wish I could tell you, I don't know something. I just liked his character. I liked the voice. You know, I liked the way I felt when I was writing him and his situation just became very interesting to me. And that's, and that's when a lot of the sort of plot picks up because if you read the book, you'll understand there's some sort of, like you said earlier, nefarious stuff going on. There's troublesome things. Right. And although I want the, I, I do want the book hopefully to be a, uplifting and optimistic look at life the the truth of life is that it's not always that way and it, it it's not to me it's not a book just full of jokes and john prime references i mean it's a book about pain and hardship and loss and all, you know all the things that make life so rich and so once he came about i recognized that the only way that this could work is for all of these characters to matter to one another and to be sort of intertwined and so that's that's one of the real fun to me, projects of novel writing, you know, is finding ways to connect different threads and connect different lives. And so as I started writing it, yeah, I wanted, I wanted the plot of each character to, in surprising ways, affect the plot of others. And that's really how that came about. Some of the characters, you know, you just end up really caring for. Uh, I know that, that sounds strange because they're just made up, you know, it's just a bunch of letters <laughs> on, a, on a computer. I, I get it. But you really do. You, you know, Father Pete, for example, is a character that I just, I just came to really like, you know, I, I liked thinking about him. Even when I wasn't writing, I liked imagining him. And so you have these characters that you care for. And then, you know, that's where I think the, the hard work comes in is making the plot knit together, which is not always easy. <laughs> well, I would love to have you read a passage from the book. And there is a, a section early on in the book, I think it's beginning of chapter six, where Douglas Hubbard, high school teacher, is uh, is giving his thoughts on on how time passes differently for teachers. And I feel like I have a lot of friends who are teachers and they will really appreciate this, <laughs> <laughs> this passage. So... <laughs> Would you read for us the beginning of chapter six? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. Thank you. And yeah, just for a little context, yeah, this is this is Douglas sort of leaving work at the end of a school day in which he has discovered a sort of secret about his wife that he did not know and which he's had other unfortunate uh, occurrences happen during the day beyond teaching. And so this is just a little scene uh, of him leaving. By the time the three o'clock bell rang, Douglas Hubbard felt like a much older person than he'd been that morning. He was technically, of course, about eight hours older, but he had the sensation that years had gone by, decades maybe, and difficult ones. It was as if he'd gone to work that morning as jailhouse rock Elvis and emerged Las Vegas Elvis. He was not alone in this feeling. All across America at that very hour, teachers poked their heads from dank school buildings like ancient turtles from their shells. They shaded their eyes with notebooks and binders, jingled heavy sets of keys in their pockets, and looked, as a group, generally confused as to how the sun was still out, how the day could possibly be so long. This confusion made them drop their favorite travel mugs and neoprene water bottles in the parking lot, where they watched them roll beneath cars and realized they would have to get on their hands and knees in front of students to retrieve them, because these cups were some of the most expensive items they owned. Would this be the day's final indignity, they wondered? It was unlikely. Yet all they knew for sure, these teachers, was that their palms hurt on the asphalt, 
Their backs were sore from standing, their voices hoarse from talking, and they felt well beyond their years. All of this, Douglas understood, was because teachers are well beyond their years. He had a theory to explain it. The phenomenon of high-speed aging, as particularly experienced by high school educators Douglas had long thought, was a simple byproduct of the space-time bend that occurs when otherwise reasonable adults are forced to navigate an adolescent's world. It wasn't merely the headaches teenagers caused that did it, with their nuisances, their ignorance, their bodily horrors, but rather, like everything else ironic about teaching high school, it was the way a school day being cut into 50-minute blocks to keep it active for the students inevitably made it interminable for the faculty. Take Douglas's day, for example. Four sections of American history with two different preps, one freshman, one junior level, an honors world history class for seniors with college hopes, a noisy cafeteria lunch, and then a break, which is not really a break at all because you need to call your wife, who suddenly thinks she'd be better off in Saudi Arabia. And then you have your picture taken by a romantic rival while your window is broken by a future Hall of Famer before prepping for three more sections of world history, civics, and Louisiana history, respectively, each of which you will try to teach while your students stare blankly at a custodian named Wilson, who is trying to fit a piece of plywood into the broken window frame without any discernible tools. All of this in the same building, often in the very same room, each scene beginning over again during the same stretch of day. It was, in many respects, like going to work on a loop. In fact, Douglas liked to think that if you tallied it all up and considered each individual class a person teaches as, as an entire workday into itself, which Douglas felt it was mentally, then a person who teaches high school ends up working for eight different days within the span from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. alone. This is not to mention the day they live before coming to work with their various family, children, and breakfast scenarios, nor the one they must face afterward with those same families and dinners and bills. Thusly, a mathematician might surmise that high school teachers actually live 10 entirely different days per each ordinary day, which means they live through 50 separate days in the five-day work week enjoyed by most human beings. Tack on the two normal days for the weekend, and the typical four-month semester actually adds up to around 800 days in fall and 800 in spring or somewhere around two years of life per semester, which of course means that for each year a person teaches high school, they're actually doing about four complete years of living. It is therefore not unusual for a freshman, by the time she graduates, to witness her favorite teacher age 16 years to her four. And if that teacher were to get roped into teaching summer school as well, then by Douglas's calculations, they might just turn to dust. <laughs> I had to kind of stifle my laughs all the way through that. I just think it's such a funny look at and true look at how it feels yeah. to be a teacher. And as you are a teacher, I'm sure there's a degree of you in that in that section too. Yes, yeah. I've, I have not I've not taught high school, right? So I've only I've only taught college. But I have to say, writing a teacher was a lot of fun uh, for me. You know, the classroom scenes are uh, were a great pleasure to write. I read somewhere that your first book took seven years to write versus the four years for this book, and that prior to your first book, you had started a couple of novels, but you got bored with them and abandoned them. So you put a lot of life into writing novels. And I'm curious what part of writing a novel takes the time for you? Is it the plot? Is it the people keep changing? Or is it just that you don't have time to do it? What And what makes a novel... What makes you want to stick with it rather than discarding it? 
Yeah, I mean, and if that doesn't sound sadistic enough, I had another book even before that, a book of short stories uh, that I spent several years on too, right? So several years for the stories, seven years for the first novel, four for this one. Um, You know, I think the ones that I ended up abandoning, it's basically because what you realize you have is a – a scenario and not a story. And there's sort of a big difference, right? I mean, lots of times you sit down, and you're like, Oh, I got, I got this great idea. You know, um, you know, aliens are going to visit and they're going to, uh, you know, do this. And <laughs> it's going to be so wild and great. And everybody's going to love it. And you sit there and you write 50 pages, like really quickly, just basically creating a lot of problems. Right. And then when you turn to page 51, you're like, okay, now who's going to deal with all these problems. <laughs> um, and if you don't have the interest beyond the scenario, Right. I mean, if you don't have the interest in the characters, then it, you're going to have a really hard time. So the the ones that I've managed to stick with, it's really the characters that drive me through it. I'll get to where if I'm really in on a novel, I'm sitting around thinking about these people as if they're like my relatives. I'm thinking about them as if they exist. And maybe that's delusional or whatever. But but the, but the good thing about it is that I get to a point where I feel guilty if I'm not helping them out. You know what I'm saying? Like, I feel guilty if I'm not moving them forward. Like if I'm not working on the, on the book and they're, they're sort of stuck uh, in these situations, I start to feel guilty about it. And it it brings me back to the page. Now, what takes so long is the, the puzzling out of the plot, I think is really hard because lots of times you don't know what's going to happen and you can sit there and stare at a blank page all you want and nothing comes, or you can, you can start something and you can write, you know, 20 pages and then you realize that's a really terrible idea uh, <laughs> that, you just, that you just wrote. It's not what you want. It's not in the spirit of the book. And so you have to cut that. And, you know, it's one of the weird things is that good ideas sort of don't exist until they just suddenly do. So you have to have the patience with yourself to not force it. And so that's part of what takes time. And then the other part is that I try to be pretty uh, – ruthless with myself in terms of how I evaluate the sentence level. To me, sentences are, are very important. One sentence uh, needs to be good enough to warrant a reader moving to the next sentence. You know, I don't, I don't particularly think about it uh, in terms of, is this, is this plot arc good enough to get the reader to the next thing? I think about it, was this sentence good enough to get them to the next thing, right? So I spent a lot of time editing my work, right? I mean, that was, that was one of the things when you talk about the first novel taking me you know, seven years. Well, I had only written short stories up to that, you know, up to that point. And so I was very used to being able to sit down, start on page one, you know, read through page 15 and have the whole thing and edit the whole thing over and over again. I was used to that. Well, I unfortunately took that same uh, tactic to the novel. And so I would sit down, you know, even when I was like 70 pages in, I would sit down on page one and start reading at page one and editing. And so five hours, five hours would go by and I'd get to page 70 and I'd type like one word and be exhausted. <laughs> I've gotten better at that now, right? I don't, I don't, I don't start on page one again every time. Um, but I'll, t- I'll tell you this though, like I'm working on the stuff I'm working on now, you know, I've got a hundred something pages in it and I, I, I sat down on page one the other day. <laughs> just, I guess I just like to torture myself. I don't know. We shouldn't expect that book before 2030 then really. No, yeah, yeah. It's going to take a while. That's uh, probably going to take a while. 
So you received, I believe, multiple bids from production companies to adapt the big door prize for the screen. And you decided to go with David West Reed, who is the producer of Schitt's Creek, and it'll be on Apple TV. It's being filmed in Loganville, Georgia, and there'll be 10 half hour episodes, which, if I'm reading the Internet correctly, is going to feature the IT crowd's Chris O'Dowd, Gabrielle Dennis from A Black Lady Sketch Show and David. Gupton, who is in Black Lightning. I wonder how much is this TV production a separate animal from the book? And do you have any input on it? Yeah, it's a it's a totally separate animal. And I'm very glad for that. <laughs> I mean, one of the the great things about being in that situation where you can we can listen to people talk about visions they have for adapting your work, right, is is to have options. Anyone, I think it's it's a dream for someone to say, I love this book. I want to make a movie out of it or whatever. That That's just a, that's a lifelong dream, right? And, and it's amazing. But I was very fortunate to hear a lot of different takes on it, you know? And, and David, he was the only one that had the idea for like a 30-minute comedy, like, like, like Schitt's Creek, right? And when I was talking to him, that, you know, that initial time, it was, it was as if someone was describing the absolute best version of my book back to me in a way that I hadn't heard before. Like all the, all the parts that he loved were secretly the parts that I really loved. And so from that point on, you have decisions about, okay, well, how involved do you want to be? All this type of stuff. And I know lots of writers who are, are very hands-on anytime they've, they've had an adaptation, they want to write the script, they want to do all that. I am not that way. I mean, partly because I am, I'm talking to David, who's one of the great TV writers of our generation, right? He knows, like, he knows what he's doing. And so I was, I was happy to say, you know what, I'm, I'll just be like a consultant. So I'm a, I'm a producer on the show and I consult and I'm just, I can't tell you how like thrilled I am with, with the version that has come out of this. You know, it keeps the heart of the story, but it, it does things that I never would have thought of. Do you know when it's coming out? We're hoping January or February of next year, but I don't know. I, I know that the first, I know the first season has been shot. Perfect. Well, I mean, to those yes. of us far beyond the realms of ever having a book turned into a TV series, this is kind of a you know a, an inside baseball question. Is there is it like a giant payday where you can suddenly start buying the top shelf bourbons and get season <laughs> tickets to the fancy box at LSU games, or is it just like business as usual? Not much changes. I mean, you don't have to give me any numbers, but is it is it right. a, a significant change? <laughs> Yeah, well, any I mean, any any time you get paid for writing, it feels very significant, right? <laughs> uh, I, I think that I think that the that the novelists, you know, anytime something's adapted, are probably the least paid out of the people, right? But yeah, no, it's it's not the type of thing where I've I mean, let's put it this way: I'm still working a full time job, right? Uh, <laughs> I'm still I'm still teaching, so uh, that probably gives you uh, some idea. Well, let's end with your thoughts on a quote from one of the book's reviewers. This is from the American Library Association's Booklist reviewer who wrote, It is hard to believe that Walsh wrote this moving novel long before the COVID-19 pandemic, for there is eerie prescience in its soulful message that gratitude and grace are not to be taken for granted and that life can be upended in an instant. Do you feel like you've written a book for the times? Yeah, it was really it was really strange the way those things happened and you know the way they sort of coincided and don't get me wrong if I could change anything it would be to take away the covid-19 pandemic and not have it rhyme with my book but I I do think it was weird that you know when it came out there was a time that a lot of people 
were having to sort of look themselves in the mirror and ask, like, why am I doing what I've been doing for so long? Right. I mean, when you took people out of their the the social you took the social aspect out of their work and they were just at home staring at a computer. I think that a lot of people had that question, like, who am I? Like, what am I doing? Like, what else, what else could I try? And so I do think that that sort of, that sort of rhymed with the message of the book. Like I said, uh, I, I wish it wasn't that way because, you know, anyone that released a book in 2020 can tell you it was not a great year for books. And there were a lot of beautiful novels that came out that year. But uh, I do hope that a lot of those books from 2020 get sort of rediscovered. Well, Columbia, Missouri is certainly going to be discovering your book. M.O. Walsh's novel, The Big Door Prize, is this month's Daniel Boone Regional Library's One Read Book. And there is a whole series of events surrounding it, including a flash fiction writing contest, an art exhibit entitled Possibility Promise, book discussions, an exploration of second acts and starting over, teen mental health, the magic of small towns, a John Prime listening party, and many other events. Plus... On Tuesday, the 27th of September, Emma Walsh will be here at Columbia College's Launa Auditorium for a discussion about his book. And that talk will also be streamed live right here on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia. You can read all about the events that are coming up at oneread.dbrl.org forward slash events. And Emma Walsh, it has been such a treat getting to chance to chat with you. And thanks for your compelling books and for making time to chat. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just I just got goosebumps when you were mentioning all the things that are happening uh, in town around the book. That's amazing. It um, is. Oh, that's that's so great. I'm just very I'm thankful. And I cannot wait to get there and, and meet everybody. It's uh, it's it's awesome. There are so many incredible musicians, artists and writers out there. And sometimes I feel a sense of panic that I cannot possibly know about all of them. Who am I missing that I absolutely should know? And that is how I felt this week when I realized I could have spent my life missing the music and voice of Chris Matthews and how thankful I was to Columbia's Compass Music Center, where Chris will be teaching a masterclass on social justice songwriting and performing a concert on Saturday, September the 10th. Earlier this year, Chris won the 2021 Song of the Year from the International Folk Music Awards for her song Changemakers, taken from her album of the same name. A hope-fueled, love-filled, social justice rallying cry set of songs that talk about immigration, black lives, racial injustice, gun safety, the opioid crisis, as well as the importance of meeting people where they are and causing good trouble. The album is, she says, an all-aboard call for the hope train. In 2017, Chris not only won the grand prize at the new Song, Music and Performance competition at the Lincoln Centre, winning out over 5,000 other entrants, also released an album about love and life titled The Imagineers and an EP of social justice songs called Battle Hymn for an Army of Lovers. She has been hailed as the next Woody Guthrie compared to Tracy Chapman and Ruthie Foster. But really, she is simply and powerfully Chris Matthews, a songwriter whose music ranges across American folk, blues, bluegrass and country soul. A preacher's daughter from Richland's North Carolina, who is a proud butch identified lesbian, a really good cook, became a proficient gardener during lockdown, has a penchant for the real housewives of Atlanta, dislikes set lists 
is a left-handed guitarist, finds wisdom in the words of her grandmother's favourite president, FDR, and in the words of Dr King, is an astounding drum major for justice. Chris, what an honour and delight to have you on the show. What an absolute honour to be here. My goodness, what a wonderful introduction. Thank you for that. Well, as I outed you on having a thing about the real Housewives of Atlanta, I will return the confession by admitting that my trashy TV guilty pleasure is The Bachelor. And I really think there should be an LGBTQ version, though I worry that, in fact, it will mostly point out that cisgender people are far worse behaved, more prone to histrionics, weeping and saying, that's amazing. Uh, But would you tune in? I would definitely watch that. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. (laughs) So you will be here in Columbia on the 10th of September, teaching a social justice songwriting workshop. And I am curious what some of the tips are that you give to young people starting on this journey, as it seems like the most important ones can't be taught. And it's about how to have an open heart and a passion for being that drum major for justice. What are the tips you give out? Absolutely. It's so interesting. Kids, we find ourselves kind of almost trying to shelter young people from some of these really important conversations as if they aren't constantly thinking about these same things every single day. You know, Mm -hmm. they're they're only just young. They still live on this planet. They're still concerned with how things go on this planet because the world that we create for them is the world that they're going to inherit. So they very much have skin in the game. And so for them, the idea of being able to kind of teach them how to say what it is they already want to say in a way that gets to the crux of of what it is they are trying to convey to folks. It's a thing that's difficult no matter what age you are, is trying to distill down the tweet-sized version of the truth it is that you really want to share with somebody else. And so it's kind of about that. It's about teaching folks how to get to the the heart of what it is they're trying to say, and also to do what tends to be so very effective with social justice music, which is not burying the heart of it, because people's ears just tend to work better when they can kind of find the empathy and compassion in an issue. Those are the things that always reach people when, when it's always anger, when it's always rage. And and I am by no means discrediting those two very, very useful emotions and very, very pertinent emotions, especially in the current times. But if the objective is as a songwriter to have people actually listen to what it is you want to say, sometimes the best way to do that is to make sure their ears actually stay on through the entire song. And I find more often than not uh, with the difficult things I sing about, the best way to achieve that is meeting folks with compassion and empathy the end and kind of inviting them to come into a particular story through that lens. Right. There's such a feeling of nihilism, I think, in the next generation and, you know, in, in all of us of just where is the future? What are we doing? How can we change anything? So yeah. that must be hard sometimes for young people to, in social justice writing, to feel hope. Yeah. Do people always have hope? Do you always find that in them? It's interesting. I really do. I I joke sometimes. It's not a it's not a Chris Matthews show if somebody's not crying. <laughs> um, a lady told me when I was at a festival in Canada that I should start making sure I have uh, packets of Kleenex at my merch <laughs> table for for folks to buy on the way in. But the reason is it's because they they do find themselves, I think, somewhat surprised by how hopeful they remember to be, um, because it is, there is so much happening. It feels so overwhelming. I think a lot of folks just kind of want to bury their heads in the sand and, you know, move on because it just feels like everything is so hopeless. But 
signing on to that is kind of giving the other side more fuel because as I always tell folks when I'm when I'm teaching and when I'm singing, you know, the important thing is the hope. That is the point of it, because when people continue to hope for better, they continue to fight for better. And so when it comes to music, if you are able to kind of have a hard conversation, shed light on a, on a difficult truth or sometimes an uncomfortable truth, but do so with the ultimate goal being to remind people of how important it is to maintain hope that we can fix this thing, hope that we can do better um, and should be doing better. At the end of the day, you may inspire somebody to, to do something that actually might change and make some good in this world in a way that it may not have had you not said what you did say. So, right. yeah. You picked up clarinet in sixth grade and you had dreams of being a high school band director and went off to (laughs) Appalachian State to study music education. But how did that end up in this amazing career? And when did songwriting become part of your journey? (laughs) Such an interesting tale. So (laughs) as I was pursuing my, my, my career as a future high school band director at App. Um, my roommate at the time was also in the School of Music and was a percussionist and was part of this band. And so this one particular night, she was like, we have this gig and our keyboard player can't make it. Do you think you could fill in for the gig? And of course, you know, growing up in, in the AME church, being a preacher's kid, my chops on the keys weren't, weren't bad. They weren't, they weren't too shabby at all. So I was like, yeah, I think I can get you through the gig. And uh, she said, and you also have to sing a song, which of course I did not anticipate having to do. <laughs> and I was like, what song is it? And it was Tell Me Something Good by Shaka Khan and Rufus. And so I was like, well, all right, I think I can sing that song. Yeah, it'll be fine. And we had the absolute best time. It was a night I still remember to this day. It was the one and only show we ever played together as a band in that configuration. And it literally changed my life. That It was one of those moments where truly that particular night changed my life. I had the best time and it was such a cool feeling. I came home and wrote my first song um, on keys. I wasn't even playing guitar at that time. And so the song that I ended up writing, my very first song that I ever wrote, I entered into the campus talent show and ended up winning first place with it, which was 500 bucks, which is like, <laughs> man, the currency translator on that is like $2 million for college kids. It's like, holy smokes, this is amazing. And so that was it. It was just like, man, maybe I'm not bad at this. And so I just kept writing more and more songs and ultimately did find my way to guitar, which is another fun story. Folks are always like, why do you play the guitar upside down and backwards? That's a whole nother segue of a story. But Oh, because you're uh, left-handed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so that that's kind of how it all started. I just kept writing and kept getting better and better and then had, had more important things I felt like to say and ultimately learned how to say those things. Well, it's a long way, though, from being a good songwriter to actually having a career. I mean, <laughs> you can give up the day job. This is what you yeah. do for a living. I mean, how yes. how did that all happen? So that was interesting. That that did take some time. Um, as you can imagine, the illustrious life of a folk singer is one that is usually uh, <laughs> it goes hand in hand with poverty by and large. But uh, as I was beginning to to be a more serious uh, musician to you know, start to have albums that were created and available for people to get and actually having performances and a schedule and things like that. My now ex-wife, but my wife at the time, um, I was very fortunate. She was very supportive of various aspects of my career. And so because she had what I like to jokingly kind of call a good government job, (laughs) it did make it easy for me to pursue just being an artist to kind of say, okay, look, 
can you hold us down for like six months and let me just give this a really good shot and see if there's anything to it. And she agreed and did. And, and so things kind of really did take off from there. I was able to enter new song and become part of various communities like uh, the Folk Alliance International Community and the Northeast Regional Folk Alliance Community and things like that and just get my name out there um, and get in front of more and more folks. So I was able to kind of really buckle down and, and focus uh, my energy and attention on on being an artist. And it has paid off. I, I got a booking agent shortly thereafter, uh, after winning New Song and got a manager uh, this past month. And uh, things have been going very well. Fantastic. One of the things you want to inspire people to do is to have the difficult conversations. And I wonder of the difficult conversations that you have turned into songs, which was the most profound for you? Mm. Wow, what a great question. It's probably a, a toss up. The The song that kind of, I call it the sleeper track on Changemakers is called This Kind of War. And that song for me, that was a really important story to tell because I know how many of my friends and neighbors are struggling with the opioid crisis, but it's a thing that has not knocked on my family's door. Uh, we're very fortunate in that way. And so to try to tackle an issue like that, that is so deeply personal to so many people in a way that did not feel exploitative, in a way that really called people in to be mindful of, of the struggles that a lot of their neighbors are shouldering and shed light on something that is truly affecting so many people and doing so quietly because there's so much shame and stigma around it. I think that song is pretty profound for me because of that. Well, I'd love to share one of your tracks. So maybe that's the one we should listen Listen to this kind of war. Yeah. Okay, here it is. This kind of war by Chris Matthews. He's got a hole in his heart where his daughter used to be. And another one, yeah, another one for the neighbor down the street. It's a war zone from the pulpit to the bleachers, students and teachers drowning. His sweet little mining town is crumbling down around him. He was a simple kind of man, never thought this would be his life. They say misery loves company, but then the heartbreak claimed his wife. And this is one fight he can't win. Just another walking casualty of an overdose tragedy. He said, yeah, I used to be like you. Now I'm like the sticker out of my rear view. It says, shoot your local heroin dealer that no-doubt murdering dreams dear. Cause the bodies just keep piling up. How much longer to you seen enough? is no more, no more pain. It'll cost the 
Let's her hands hide her face as they take her love away. He's just another one of the twenty-some whose demons won that day. And this is one fight she can't win with an enemy she can't see. She's just another walking casualty of an overdose tragedy. She said, Yeah, I used to be like you. Now I'm like the sticker out of my rear view, but it's not. songs are they melody led or lyric led it's so fascinating i really cannot say 100% of the time it's one or the other it really <laughs> just varies from song to song truly for example with this kind of word that one actually was melody driven the the motif that you hear playing throughout that came first but it's like it's so inconsistent it really from song to song i think with every song i have i can tell you a different way that it came to be Listening to some of the tracks on your 2017 album, which was called Imagineers, there are some very resonant lyrics in the title track about how we've not given up on dreaming just because we're marking time in good careers, banging yeah. our head against our corner office wall and wielding power quietly like water carving stone. Tell mm. us about the title Imagineers and, and the message in that track. Yeah, I love that song and the idea of, of those two sides kind of of your brain and of your being kind of coexisting together. Because for so many of us, we have these areas of passion for ourselves, where we are our most creative, where we almost are like our childlike energy is still there, that creativity that makes us so full of wonder as kids. And then many of us are at the same time coexisting as these very, very productive adults. But um, yeah, that idea is that notion of kind of those two things existing side by side. Um, and so the song was kind of about that. It's it, it's actually inspired by two different women who were a couple of generations apart from one another, but who both had really interesting career trajectories and who both needed to figure out how to be both of those things, how to still be really, really good in their careers. They're both incredibly powerful women in their work and in their day-to-day -day lives, but they also are both just absolute amazingly wonder-filled humans. And so watching them both have this parallel journey at these various stages in their careers uh, really inspired the song. That's one that is a dear, dear song to me. You mentioned earlier how people say, oh, you should be selling Kleenex on the way in because people always cry to Chris Matthews concert. <laughs> is there, of the songs that you have written, is there a song 
that affects you the most profoundly that you well up during your singing oh, yeah. of it? Yeah, uh, it took me a very long time after writing my song, How Many More, yeah. uh, to be able to even perform that song. And on occasion, even still, I will find myself just having to stop before it's finished because it's such a difficult song to sing. It's a Black Lives Matter song. And I've talked about this many times on, on a few different songs of mine. But after 2020, after George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and uh, Elijah McClain and so many different people were killed, it felt so urgent to be able to figure out a way to have that conversation in a way that had not yet been had by me with my audiences. I'm very fortunate to have the platform that I have. My audiences are by and large older than me and by and large, very, very white. And so because of that, to be able to have their attention and have conversations like that with, with a large group of people at a time is a great tremendous responsibility and one that I do not take lightly. And so to be able to figure out how can I talk to them about this in a way that will hopefully resonate with them and hopefully inspire empathy with them and hopefully give them a tool of their own to be able to go out and have these conversations themselves in their own communities with their own friends. Because that's kind of where the change happens so often is with the folks who don't look like me, is with them being engaged and figuring out how to do something, do anything, do something. And so, yeah, that song, it is it is a hard one to sing for me, even still, but it is a, an incredibly important song. So I, I do try. Chris Matthews will be at Compass Music Centre on Saturday, September the 10th, where she will give a social justice songwriting masterclass and an evening performance in the centre's listening room. You can find out more about Chris and listen to her music on her website at chrismatthews.com and that's spelled C-R-Y-S Matthews with a double T, chrismatthews.com. And to find out more about her Columbia appearance, visit campuscolumbia.org forward slash events. Chris, thank you so so much for doing the work, for being a perpetual drum major for justice and for making time to chat to me today. Thank you so much for having me, Diana. It was an absolute delight. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingoftheartstransistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests this evening. This September's one read novelist, M.O. Walsh, and singer-songwriter Chris Matthews. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Bandcamp and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. This has been Speaking of the Arts, and my name is Diana Moxon. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri!